This is The Guardian. A warning before we get started. On today's episode, we discuss cases involving child sexual abuse allegations, which may be distressing for some listeners. If this raises any concerns for you, please call the Blue Knot Foundation for support. They're on 1300 657 380. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. And this is the full story. The Catholic Church has been forced to significantly change the way it deals with clergy abuse over the years, including the way it compensates survivors for historic sexual and physical abuse. But recently, some Australian Catholic dioceses and orders have tried to stop cases from going ahead where the alleged abuser has died. And lawyers say this approach is putting pressure on survivors to settle for less money than they should. That is what is happening and there is no regard for the victim. None whatsoever. It is incredible. It is callous and it is driven by money alone. Today, how the Catholic Church is stalling survivors' claims for compensation. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of March. So, Chris, the last time you were on the pod, we were talking about reforms that were actually making it easier for clergy abuse survivors to claim compensation from the Catholic Church. But recently you've been observing a tactic that the church has been using against survivors in courts. Tell me about that. Yes. So last year I received a tip from a lawyer about a case where the church was arguing that the death of a priest who was known to have abused children had left it unable to receive a fair trial against a survivor. Christopher Norse is a reporter for Guardian Australia. And that case um, that I was tipped off to was the case of GLJ. So GLJ alleges she was abused as a 14-year-old girl by her father, Clarence Anderson, who was a priest in the Lismore Diocese um, in, in the late 60s and 70s. The Court of Appeal, so the, the highest court in New South Wales, decided that the church couldn't receive a fair trial because Anderson was dead. And what we've seen since that decision is really this quite comprehensive strategy from parts of the church to use the deaths of clergy to basically shield itself from new claims from their survivors. So the church is taking a rather aggressive approach towards claims by survivors in cases where 
clergy have died or where they're incapacitated. So how significant was this New South Wales Court of Appeal decision for the church and its use of this argument in other cases? Yeah, look, it was huge. I mean, you know, they've tried this tactic on before. This is not something that's unprecedented or completely unique. But what we're seeing now is that since the GLJ decision, um, a lot of the Catholic bodies, principally sort of Morris brothers and Christian brothers, are really deploying this strategy in earnest. And abuse lawyers say it's happening in almost every single case now where um, a clergy member has died. Mm. It really sort of opened the floodgates um, in a sense. So it gave the church a green light to say in any case where an alleged perpetrator was dead, it could seek to permanently halt a survivor's claim. So when you think about it, you know, a lot of these cases are going to involve dead clergy, whether they're priests or brothers in Catholic orders, because they're historical cases, you know, it takes so long for survivors to come forward. So the church is arguing that a court can't fairly assess the evidence against an alleged perpetrator if they've died. But we know that the church itself has previously awarded compensation to survivors of abuse after their alleged perpetrators have died. So how does that argument hold up? It doesn't hold up, and that's for a few reasons. One is the church, as we well know, has done so much over you know, decades and decades to thwart any possibility for survivors of clergy abuse to get justice. You know, they've an order like the Morris Brothers had a deliberate policy of not telling police about child abuse complaints from the 1960s to, to 1993. I mean, it's extraordinary. And in a lot of these cases as well, you know, including in GLJ's case, the church has known of other abuse complaints against this same perpetrator, uh, Father Clarence Anderson in this case, including complaints that were made about him prior to GLJ's abuse. So the counter-argument is like, well, if there's evidence that you know he had a tendency to abuse children, that the church knew about it, didn't remove him, then this case should at least be able to get to trial so that the survivor can have their allegations heard by a judge and considered by a judge. And, you know, that that judge can then take into account the fact that, well, we don't have a direct response from the alleged perpetrator, so I need to take that into account in in my decision-making. So it's just when it boils down to it, the simple answer to that question is the church has been responsible for delaying any justice for survivors for so, so long and is now using the deaths of perpetrators in the intervening years to say it can't get a fair trial, it can't be treated fairly. So what do you think the church is really driving at here? I mean, a lot of the abuse lawyers I've spoken to, and I've spoken to many, say there's only one thing that's motivating the church here um, in, in adopting this approach, and it's it's money. You know, they're going back to a tactic where they take any means necessary to to stop a court from actually hearing a case Um, and it's because they don't want to have to spend money, they don't want the legal costs, they think that they can use this this tactic to lowball survivors when they're in the midst of settlement negotiations. You know, it's all about the money and it's completely at odds with, you know, the the position that was taken following the Royal Commission. Mm. It's on everyone's lips all over Australia. Everyone is aware of it. 
Ross Coffel, whose law firm has been dealing with abuse cases uh, for many, many years and has encountered this issue, he told me that, you know, the church bodies are now pushing these really paltry settlement amounts down the throats of, of victim survivors. It's used either as a threat or to try to reduce the amount of the quantum of the damages. Saying, now listen here, if you don't accept this sort of money, then we'll put on a stay application. So it's being used as a threat as well. Yeah. And it's being done all over Australia. So survivors' lawyers are saying that this is a deliberate strategy that the Catholic Church is using against their clients. What does the church say that they're doing here? So we reached out to a number of church bodies, uh, including Morris Brothers and Christian Brothers. We heard back from the Morris Brothers order and they denied that their use of state applications was part of any deliberate strategy. They said, you know, they review each case on their merits and their approach is guided by legal precedents and considerations. So what they've said is that, you know, where the accused is not able to respond to the allegations of a survivor, so, you know, in cases where alleged perpetrators have have died and where a fair trial would not be possible um, due to that fact, you know, it's an accepted approach that um, the church is able to apply for a permanent stay of proceedings and that the court is able to consider it. Marst also said that the National Redress Scheme, which is a scheme that offers capped amounts of compensation to survivors outside of the court process, was an alternative for, for claims that couldn't be pursued in court due to delays and due to the affliction of time. And Marist also denied that the approach was at odds with the Royal Commission findings and it said that, you know, the Royal Commission had recommended that the courts retain their ability to grant stays in in cases where a fair trial would not be possible. Right. How does this tactic actually play out in the church's favour in terms of these cases and their outcomes? So it it has an effect on a few levels. So what we usually see is, is... when a survivor lodges a claim against the church or one of the church bodies, there'd be a period of sort of pre-trial negotiations over a settlement. Um, And, you know, the church has in the past played quite hardball in those negotiations. Now what we're seeing, though, is that in cases where um, alleged perpetrators have died, they are telling survivors, if you proceed with this case, we will put on a stay application. We will argue that we can't have a fair trial because the alleged perpetrator is dead. And they're using that as a sort of threat to lowball survivors in settlement negotiations. Um, and then, you know, if the survivor pushes ahead with the case um, and, and tries to take it to trial, the church will put on that stay application. And if they're successful, they'll they'll prevent it from ever getting to trial so the court will never actually hear the survivor's allegations. Chris, have you heard from any survivors who've come up against this argument from the church when they go to court? Um, but I might just ask you, I guess, just just to start from the start, maybe just tell me a little bit about yourself, um, sort of where you grew up and uh, where the abuse happened, if, if you don't mind. <laughs> I grew up in the Bankstown Paintball area of Sydney. Yep. Um, my mother was, uh, I won't say devout, but she was uh, quite religious. Yeah, look, it's it's devastating. 
you know, I spoke with one survivor uh, named Craig Waters who was suing for really horrendous abuse when he was an eight-year-old boy um, in a Catholic school in Western Sydney. He, you know, took almost half a century to work up the courage to to sort of face the really, really traumatic parts of his childhood and, and mm. seek justice. I can't turn back the pages, but you just hated the world. You hate authority. Mm. And uh, it took a long time. took a long, long time. He got a letter or his lawyers got a letter from the church saying, you know, if you proceed with this case, you know, the alleged perpetrator who was a Catholic nun is dead and we'll tell the court that we can't get a fair trial anymore. So, you know, you better rethink this. So for Craig, when he learned that the church was going to try this tactic on, you know, he was he was shocked. I'm 62 this year and I couldn't even tell the last time I cried. So Craig told me that the last time he cried before this letter showed up was more than 30 years ago when his dad died. And um, it broke me down to tears. I was sobbing like a little kid. My wife consoled me and uh, it just destroyed me. What he was expecting was, you know, that he would be able to have his allegations and his story heard um, and and listened to and, and understood by a court and that there would be some form of justice. Instead, to be told that the church uh, wanted the court to not even hear his allegations at trial, it was devastating for him and it, it, it really led to a, a period of, of quite intense trauma for him. To know that they can just, by the clip of switch, can, they can turn off a person's life like that, it just, it, it crushing me, it's, it's soul destroying Next, how could this strategy affect future compensation claims against the Catholic Church? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Chris, all of this sounds really familiar, the church arguing that allegations can't be fully aired, uh, that there's barriers to the amount of money that they can settle for. You know, the last time this happened was the Ellis defence in the early 2000s. So what does this latest approach tell us about how the Catholic Church is approaching survivors' compensation claims years after the Royal Commission? We know the church has has form in this area. So as you mentioned there, the Ellis defence, I mean, that was another form of, to be frank, legal trickery to get around having courts hear survivors' claims against the church. And, you know, the Ellis defence 
effectively just said, well, you know, the church is an entity that can't be sued. And and in adopting that approach, they rendered thousands of survivors um, unable to sue. I mean, it was extraordinary. That's obviously been scrapped now and the church has apologised for taking that approach. But, but, you know, I spoke to John Ellis, the survivor involved in the case where the church first employed this legal argument, you know, and he just said that, that what the church is now doing in seeking stays in these circumstances is 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 morally repugnant. It's indefensible. Mm. And that that's backed up by by Francis Sullivan, who's a really critical figure in all of this. He he headed up the church's response to the Child Abuse Royal Commission. He was the chief executive of the Truth, Justice and Healing uh, Commission. He said, you know, this is another example where the church has allowed, you know, the opinions and advice of, of lawyers and of insurance companies to take precedence over its own moral leadership. And it, it's um, another stark example of the kinds of failures that were exposed um, in the Royal Commission and that the church had acknowledged and said that it wouldn't be repeated. Mm. I mean, in the case of the Ellis defence, it took many years for the church to officially renounce using that tactic and, and for, for it to apologise publicly for using it. Could it take just as long for this latest tactic to be reversed, do you think? Look, it's really interesting. Um, so it, it's tricky in the sense that it's up to the leadership of these these individual Catholic orders as to how they're going to respond to survivors' claims. But there is a big test that that's coming up and it relates to that GLJ case that we, we've discussed. So GLJ's lawyers have appealed to the High Court and the High Court has agreed to hear their appeal. So that really could change things. It really could change things depending on which way the High Court leans. Um, but even if it does rule in favour of GLJ, a lot of experts in this area are saying even then um, – we won't be able to stop the church from using this tactic or trying it on without legislative reform. So that's going to be something that's uh, the subject of some lobbying, I would, I would say, to both the New South Wales Attorney General, Mark Speakman, and, and Attorneys General in, in other jurisdictions. Mm. But if the church wins in the High Court, then it's open slather for this to be used in New South Wales and in other states, right? That's right. I, it, and, you know, it'll just have the effect of emboldening the church, right? It'll it'll just say, well, look, you know, the High Court has ruled on a similar case. Um, it has found X, Y, and Z. The risk to you in proceeding with this claim is real. So, you know, you better rethink it, you know, regardless of what the High Court says and finds and the points of law that it, that it rules on. I mean, the church would be emboldened by the High Court upholding its appeal. Hmm. A lot of lawyers and, and experts and survivors groups are saying that, you know, the only way to stop the church from using this tactic in court is to change the law. So we're already seeing efforts uh, by survivors, lawyers, academics to um, point this out to Mark Speakman, the New South Wales Attorney General, and and we know that uh, Speakman's office is is really and his department are, are quite closely watching uh, the GLJ case and the High Court decision. So it remains to be seen what they'll do if, you know, his government is re-elected. But a lot of lawyers say, you know, that legislative reform is the only answer to this. But until any potential changes to the law, either in New South Wales or other states, I guess many survivors could come up against this argument when they 
take the church to court over historic clergy abuse claims. What will this look like for those cases? So it'll be yet another hurdle or barrier that they have to get over in order to get some sense of justice. And if you look at what happened to Craig, you know, he stared down the threat from the church, uh, him and his lawyers at Morris Blackburn, and he did eventually obtain a settlement. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that this does to survivors is it tells them that they don't really matter. Yeah, like I'm waiting for the apology to come through. I'll probably look at it and then I'll burn it, yeah. you know. So people like Craig, who we've spoken about, I mean, he all he wanted was an apology and an acknowledgement of what happened to him. In taking this approach, the church is, is telling him, we don't care about that. I want to be able to put it aside. I mean, he never will. Like I said, for, you know, for 30 or 40, 50 years, I buried it. But look, they could have given me a billion dollars and I would give a straight to charity. I didn't want the money. I wanted the recognition that these assholes done this shit and they should be excommunicated, whatever they call it. Please remember, if this episode has raised any concerns for you, you can call the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380 for support. Thanks to Christopher Norse, reporter for Guardian Australia, for his time. You can find all of Chris's reporting on the cases we discussed at theguardian.com, including a feature article which details the background behind how this high court battle came to be. It's called It Crucifies You Every Time, the twisted tactic churches use to block claims from abuse survivors. We'll post a link to that article on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Laura Briley-Newton and myself. Sound design and mixing by Joe Coning, who also wrote our theme music. The executive producer for this episode was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.